0: Brothers and sisters, if you would take your copies of God's Word and open them to Psalm 20. We'll be looking there this evening, continuing our series there. We, we've said that uh, the book one of the Psalter uh, is filled with instances of uh, people praying in the midst of conflict. And we come to this psalm, and this is a prayer on the eve of conflict. Conflict, a battle of some sort, will be the next day. And this is a prayer in preparation of that. Uh, commentators think that this is a prayer that Israel would have prayed as they prepared for battle, and it's particularly a prayer for David. They appeal to God to give their king success. And so in our day, and as we read this psalm together this evening, uh, we want to think about and we want to rejoice in the success of our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who God rose from the grave. We remember as we read this psalm that our fate is tied to the fate of a king. The king, the Lord Jesus, our king died, and then he rose victoriously over the grave. And so let us consider David the king and how he points to the greater king, the Lord Jesus, as we read Psalm 20. But before we read, let's pray together. Father, would you help us to be like the noble Bereans who received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the apostles' teaching was true? Lord, help us be serious and joyful students of Your Word. Help us to pour over Your Word, that it might be written on our hearts, that we might rejoice in what is revealed to us there. Lord, help us to see very clearly uh, that we are sinners, and yet we have a Savior in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would You help us to know Him better this evening? It is in His name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me for the reading of the Word from Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May He send send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May He remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Well, this is a prayer of David. David is the author of this psalm, and it's written to be sung by the people. But it's a prayer that David wrote that they would pray for him. In verses 1 through 5, if you look there, the you in Hebrew there is singular. So it's not y'all, it's you. They're praying specifically for one person. And verse 5 begins, may we. So the main speaker in this psalm is not one individual. Often we've been reading uh, prayers that are straight out of the mouth of David. Uh, it's, It's a group of speakers in this psalm. In verse 6, we learn that the subject of this psalm is the anointed, that is the king of Israel. And this is emphasized in verse 9 when it concludes, O Lord, save the king. And so what's happening in this psalm? Well, David wrote a song for his people to pray for him, and particularly his army to pray for him. This is, you could think about it this way: this is a detailed prayer request that David gave to his people written for singing on the eve uh, the day before they were going to go into any given battle now what benefit of uh, what what benefit is there to this for the people of Israel uh, how do they share in that is this just a, a a psalm that they would pray for David and therefore David is the one who benefits well no this is for the good of all the people of Israel because as I mentioned a moment ago their fate is tied to their king. If their king fails in battle, then likely they will fail in battle. But there's more to it than just that. David prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ who will lead his people in a greater victory over sin and death. And so David, in many ways, is teaching his people how to pray for him, their king. He's also teaching them to look forward to a greater king who will come for their salvation. Well, we'll look at this psalm in three parts, and we'll spend the most time in this first section looking at this prayer for the king in verses 1 through 5. I want you to see this passionate prayer where essentially the subject is, God save the king. In verses 1 through 5, it is a string of supplications. It's seven Mays in a row. Did you see that? You notice the passion. Uh, the intensity of this section. If you were praying this, it's four maize in a row, and then you get a selah so that you can breathe for a second, and then it's three more maize after that. And the very first one in verse one, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. For David and for his people, that would be right now. The occasion for this psalm is the day before they go into battle. And so Whether David originally gave this to them as a prayer during peacetime or whether the first time for it was the day before they were going to go into some battle against some army, uh, this would be uh, a prayer that they would say uh, when enemies were visible in the distance. They could probably see the enemy encamped. Uh, It's very appropriate to call such a day a day of trouble. What was Israel supposed to do then when they heard the report that battle was coming, that the army was going to be called forward to either defend Israel or to go out in order to stop some future problem? Well, what the psalm is telling us is that every man, woman, and child was supposed to pray. If a battle was coming, then it was a call for all. To pray. Now, the men of fighting age and ability were to be gathered for battle, but mainly all were supposed to be praying. Now, what is their hope? What is the army doing as they gather together uh, and, and prepare for the next day of battle? They've been training for this. Their bodies are strong, their weapons are sharp. They're checking their supplies to make sure they have all they need. But they're concerned for uh, something that's more than physical. They're being called by Psalm 20, by their king, by their commander in chief, not only to report to duty, but they're also being called to worship because this is part of their duty. Psalm 20 is establishing for us so that we can see that before Israel ever went into battle, they were supposed to pray and seek the Lord. They were first and foremost to be a worshiping people. Now, this is a direct contrast with David's predecessor, Saul. Saul was hasty with his worship before battle. Uh, He either didn't care and and wanted to rush into battle and, and rush ahead, or he thought he could do things his own way. So in 1 Samuel chapter 13, when Saul was about to go into battle with the Philistines, the prophet Samuel specifically told him to wait until Samuel came so that he could lead the people in worship, so that he could lead the people in sacrifice. And so they waited seven days. And this was certainly a test of faith for Saul. But Samuel was a prophet. And so when he gave instructions to Saul like this, he was giving Saul the very word of God. So of course it was difficult for Saul. Of course it was a challenge for him, but Saul was supposed to wait on the Lord. But what do we know about Saul? And this is a problem for Saul throughout First Samuel. He is either uh, he's either passive and he doesn't act when he should, or he uh, reacts too strongly. And so seven days were too long for Saul. He would not trust. He would not wait. He would not submit to the word of the Lord. Uh, he he blames this on being worried that his troops are leaving, um, which. If that was true, we should remember that God can save by many or by few, so this shouldn't have been a concern for Saul. He should have trusted the Lord, but what he does is he takes uh, worship, he takes the responsibilities of a priest into his own hand, and he makes a sacrifice, which he was explicitly not supposed to do. And if you remember the story from 1 Samuel 13, as soon as he's completed the sacrifice, he sees Samuel coming in the distance. It's the worst timing possible for Saul, but it's perfect timing uh, as the Lord intended. Samuel told Saul that because of his rash vow, his kingship would be given to a better man, one after his own heart, the King David. Well, David here in Psalm 20, he will not repeat the sins of Saul. He won't rush through worship as a matter of formality before battle. He won't treat worship, he won't degrade worship as if it's sort of a a lucky charm for him that this thing uh, will happen in a certain way and it's in order to ensure our success. No, David is committed and he's teaching his people to be committed to worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth before they go into battle. Because the Lord is their real help in battle and he can save by many or by few. They could be the best trained warriors of all time that are assembled behind David. But without God's blessing, they could be unsuccessful. And so David's instructing them, this is how you cast yourselves before the Lord. But see in the second part of verse 1 that they can do this with confidence. Why? Because the Lord is their God. In verse 1 it says, May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. When you see this emphasis on God's name, uh, we're emphasizing God's reputation. It's meant to recall God's mighty acts. How has God acted in the past for His people? You're supposed to survey your Bibles when you hear about the name of the Lord. And think about Jacob being saved from famine, Joseph being saved from prison and exalted over Egypt. You're supposed to think about the Exodus. You're supposed to think about the Israelites being preserved in the wilderness. You're supposed to think about success in Canaan, even against giants. It's the name of the God of Jacob. He has protected His people. And the fact that He is the God of Jacob reminds them that this is their God. Who is Israel named after, after all? Where did this name come from? Well, from Jacob. God renamed Jacob Israel after His night of striving. David is teaching the people to pray, this is our God. You are His people. We are His people. He will not ultimately forsake you. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you in this day of trouble. There may even be a more specific passage in mind here. In Genesis 35, we read this about Jacob. In, in Genesis 35, verse 2, it says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. That word distress is the same in the Hebrew as the day of trouble. Those phrases are almost exactly the same as Psalm 20, verse 1. And so maybe here, perhaps David wants to press the people of Israel. Are you tempted to look to other gods to deliver you? Are you tempted to look to human instruments as he'll bring up later in the psalm? Put away your gods. Put away your trust in all other things. Do not think that Any soldier supports the battle of Israel by appealing to some other god, some pagan deity. Victory comes from God alone. And so every man of their army is supposed to throw themselves down before the Lord and consecrate themselves to Him. And He will send help. He will send help. We see this in verse 2. Verse 2 says, May He send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. David here is teaching the people how to have a proper view of the sanctuary of Zion. Zion is the hill on which Jerusalem is built where David's son Solomon is one day going to build the temple. But for now, the the ark uh, is the place where the ark of the covenant is there, where God's footstool is said to be, where uh, the Lord is enthroned between the cherubim. Well, the important thing that David is recognizing and and that he's helping the people see is that God is present among his people. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized God being with his people. It's called his footstool, which means that the people aren't supposed to stare at the Ark. This means a lot of things, but one of the things at least it means is that they're not supposed to stare at the Ark and made an idol of it. It's meant to lift up their heads to heaven where the Lord is but it's also not meant to be turned into an idol. And this is very important. A proper understanding of this is really important for Israel because of their history. In the past, they have treated the Ark as if it was a token, as if it was a good luck charm. You see this in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Before Israel had a king, they were in battle against the Philistines, and they were losing. And they thought, I bet if we brought the Ark of the Covenant out here, It would help us out. Surely then we would win the battle. They thought that they could drag God out when they needed Him. They had been ignoring Him, but now we'll bring Him out in our time of need and He'll fix everything for us. They they only needed God to get involved when they were desperate is another way of saying this. And and, and we should stop there and think, do, do people treat the Lord this way? And do people think about God in this way, that I'll ignore Him until I really need Him, and that's when I'll call out to Him? Well, how is that going to go for the Israelites here? It goes terribly for them. Uh, they are brutally destroyed by the Philistines, and they lose the Ark of the Covenant. they not permanently. Over the course of a couple chapters, it comes back uh, to them. But the Lord's sanctuary, David is reminding his people, it's not for good luck. It's not for earthly success. It's not for their security. It's not to make them feel better. It's something God has graciously provided for His people. It's a visible symbol for His people that God is near them. They're looking in that direction and remembering that God has pledged to be with His people. David is teaching his army, we depend on the grace of God. And then David teaches his people to pray that God would honor sacrifice. Look at verse 3 with me. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. This is what David is teaching the people to pray for him. And so in the Old Testament, part of their means of grace was regularly bringing sacrifices before the Lord. And this was a faithful confession of sin. Uh, We need blood to be shed because we are sinners. And so isn't it interesting what David is doing here? David's not maintaining power by pretending that he's not a sinner, that he's better than everybody else. Now, he will pretend this in the episode with Bathsheba, and he will truly repent and be forgiven for all that, but he'll face terrible consequences for that. But here, David is setting the expectation for the king that the king is to be repentant. The king depends on the mercy of God. And so the the question for David is, will he lead in repentance? Will he be this humble leader for the people? You imagine the opportunity that David has for conviction as he teaches the people to pray this for him the day before battle. No doubt the Lord would be bringing sins to mind for David to repent of. Well, of course, the king that, we, uh, that they were anticipating in that day and that we know is the Lord Jesus Christ, He has no sin. Instead, Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. He offered Himself. He satisfied the full wrath of God against the elect. And so our response to God's salvation um, by By his grace uh, is is that we worship him, that we do good works that our faithful witness would be a pleasing aroma which goes up to him uh, David uh, is is leading his people in repentance. one verse four, the people pray for him, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfil all your plans. Now this is certainly the kind of prayer that the people would want to pray for David. Only if David desired God's glory and their good. If his plans were for godliness, it's kind of a scary thing for them to pray that uh, God would give David exactly what he wants. But David is supposed to want what is good for his people. He's supposed to be shaped by the Word. This is God's call for him. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, it, it gives us the uh, the standards for a king. It says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So the king is supposed to be an expert in the word of God, but then it goes on to say this, that his heart may not be lifted up above, listen to what it calls the citizens, the people of Israel, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children. The, The king, negatively, was not supposed to be lifted up above his brother which assumes the positive, he was to rule for the good of his brother. And so the effect of this ought to be self-examination on the part of the king. If David and the army were singing this song, it would force him to ask the question, do I have the good of my brother? And ultimately, do I have the glory of the Lord as my highest goal, as my highest end? It's a vulnerable thing in some ways for David to pray this. And so David uh, has, David's army has prayed for him in verse one that God would answer him. In verse two, that God would help him. In verse three, that God would remember his offerings and grant, and in verse four, that he would grant his desires. And then in verse five, they express their confidence that God will answer these prayers, that the king and the army will be successful. In verse five, uh, we see this. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. David is teaching the people that answered prayers are cause for celebration. The people of God don't presume on answered prayer. It's interesting here. They seem very confident that the Lord is going to give them success. But even when they're really confident that the Lord is going to answer their prayers, it's always a cause for celebration. Brothers and sisters, do we celebrate even when God gives us something that we expect? Lamentations tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. Jeremiah there is is in the midst of awful suffering, and yet he is grateful for every new day. Do you greet every new day as a grand gift from our Lord? We're supposed to pray, give us this day our daily bread. If you go through the times that Jesus prays in the Gospels, many of the times that Jesus prays are associated with Him breaking bread. Both of the miracles of the loaves feeding multitudes and at the Last Supper and at His post-resurrection appearances. If the Lord Jesus in His earthly ministry thanks God for bread, shouldn't we? It's not that we throw a huge party every time we sit down to the table. But we at least pray, we at least offer gratitude to the Lord for what He has given us. And so for the Israelites, for a win in battle, there ought to be great celebration. But look who gets the praise in verse 5. It's not ultimately David. And it's not ultimately his mighty men. The the praise, and certainly they, they would have done things that were worthy of praise, but the praise doesn't terminate on them the people set their banners up in the name of the Lord. It's for Him, uh, and it's for His people that they go into battle. And it's Him that they celebrate as they come back from battle. And and all these blessings culminate in verse 5 with, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. The people recognize that they are joining David's prayers. David does not presume on their prayers. He's a praying king and he's asking his brothers to be a praying people that they would lift him up in prayer. Brothers and sisters, how does this apply to us? Well, as as Israel was to be a praying people, the church, the fulfillment of Israel, we are to be a praying people. We are to ask the Lord for our daily success in our spiritual battles, looking to Christ who won the ultimate victory over sin and death. And we should remember here, David wrote a psalm to get people to pray for him. And if that seems boastful or strange to you, then maybe you need to remember that you need to ask people for prayer. It's so important that you have people praying for you. The king needed it. You need it. Consider the humility of David to ask for such extensive prayer from the people of God. He's asking them, uh, to to, to in, in, in this prayer effectively he would be considering his own sin his own need and he's asking the people for prayer if the king can do it we must do it we must ask our brothers and sisters to pray for us give them specific requests that they might pray for us that we could also rejoice with each other when the Lord is faithful to answer our prayers we should remember too that we as individuals we need to pray We don't just rely on the prayers of others. We don't just presume on the prayers of others. We need to pray ourselves. David is praying here. Now, There there would have been many practical things for the army of Israel to attend to the day before battle. They need to sharpen their swords. They need to ready their horses. They need to get their arrows together. They need to check their armor. They need to be preparing food so that people have energy to make it through battle the next day but they need to pray and worship God. Sometimes we think that prayer is important in some areas of life, but not in others. That in other areas, it's all about hard work and discipline. But it's all important. We're always to be training our brains, training our bodies, be disciplined, work hard certainly, and in all things, pray. In all things, submit your way to the Lord. We rely as individuals, as families, as the church on our Lord for life, breath, and everything. Act like it by coming to Him joyfully, willingly, freely, quickly, coming to Him in prayer. Well, having sought the Lord on the king's behalf, there's this declaration of faith. Now, it's it's unclear here whether this is the people continuing to speak Or if this is a call and response from David, and so now David is speaking. The people have prayed for him, and now he returns. But either way, there's this incredible statement of confidence. Uh, And confidence because God has saved the king in the past, and they're trusting the Lord to continue to be faithful to His people, just as we, the church, are, are. Know that the Lord will be faithful to us. We'll see this statement of confidence in verse six. Now I know. That the Lord saves his anointed, he will answer him from his holy heaven. That they say now may mean that they're considering all that God has done in the past, or it may simply be a statement of assurance, but we see here that the Lord saves his anointed. David is the anointed, he's the king, he's set apart for this task, but he ultimately points to Christ. Uh, who the Lord, remember as we read in Psalm 16, will not abandon to Sheol. He will not let His Holy One see corruption. Uh, Just as the Lord has preserved King David in the past and this emboldens the people of Israel's confidence, they're learning to look ahead to this King, uh, the Lord Jesus, who will conquer the grave. And they continue in this statement of confidence in the second part of verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer him from His holy heaven. It's interesting here. This transcends what we read in verse 2. The support comes from a place higher than Zion, higher than the sanctuary. Uh, We keep getting higher and higher here. It goes to the place that those things point to, the sanctuary, the place that held the Ark of the Covenant. All of that is about pointing to uh, the heavenly realm where the Lord is, in fact, Uh, The tabernacle is only, and later the temple, they're only copies of heavenly realities. God's right hand has saving might. Look at that third part of verse 6. They're looking, He he will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. The right hand is a symbol of power. And who has more power than God? But notice here, what does that mighty hand do? What does the mighty right hand of the Lord do? Does it judge? Well, it certainly does. It judges for those who do not repent and will not bow their knee to the Lord and King. But for the King, what does this mighty right hand do? Well, for the King and for His people, God's right hand is mighty to save, to bring salvation to His people. This is what the Lord does with His might. And this leads uh, David... Uh, to teach the people of Israel to make this contrast. In verse 7, it's a powerful statement here. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. This is very pointed. Horses and chariots may as well be for us tanks, drones, fighter jets. You think of the most advanced military equipment. Horses and chariots were that in their day and the israelites could have looked at other nations and seen them trying to rack up ammunition uh, and to guard themselves against israel and other nations and here even for israel they're the day before battle they're checking their own horses and chariots but ultimately their hope is in the lord he can save by many or by few he can save by gideon and his 300 and some empty jars uh, he can save uh, with Shamdar and his ox-goad, he can save with J l and a tent-peg he can save with Samson and the jawbone of a donkey. It is the Lord who saves it is not your money, it's not your might. it is your master, the Lord Jesus, He is the only one who can save, and so David is teaching his army that their relationship with God is the utmost. In the second part of verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Again, the name. David is bidding everyone look at his history. Look at our covenant God who shares His name, Yahweh, with us. We call and He hears us. And this leads them into the confidence of verse 8. They collapse and fall. The chariots and the horses, they collapse and fall. But we rise and stand upright. It's not saying here that every once in a while a chariot breaks or that every once in a while a horse gets a broken leg. There is not a horse from this time still living. There is not a chariot that eventually didn't break or turn over or rot out or get burnt up. All of these things fade. All of these things fall apart. But the Lord lasts. So the question is whose side do you want to be on? All of God's people say, We'll take the king. We want to be on the king's side. We will stand with the Lord and with his anointed. And so that brings them to the final section this continued prayer. One more prayer, one more line, and it essentially says, Lord, answer us. It says, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Again, we see here very clearly that the fate of Israel is tied to the fate of the king. The the people want the king, David, to be successful because then that will be their success. So Dale Ralph Davis uh, says that the king is Israel an interesting way of putting it. He says the king is Israel. What does he mean by that? Well, the king, and David here, represents Israel. How he is doing is how they're going to end up doing. The fate of the people is tied up in their king. And Dale Ralph Davis directs us to Psalm 84 verse 9 for this. It says, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. He's saying that Uh, The shield for the people of Israel is the anointed, is the king. So the question is, what relevance does this have for us as the church? What relevance does this whole psalm have for us, the church? Brothers and sisters, Christ is our representative. The Lord Jesus is the king. And the fate of his people, the fate of the church is tied up with him. How he's doing is how we're doing. And how is the Lord Jesus doing? He died, He rose again, and He reigns. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. This is what we have in Christ. Because of what the Lord Jesus did for us with His life, death, and resurrection, we are, by His Holy Spirit, united with Him. And so the blessings that come to Christ also come to us because we are one with Him. Galatians 2.20 says it this way, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul can speak of being crucified with Christ because he's united with him. In Colossians 3, one he's going to speak of being raised with Christ because he is in union with him. Brothers and sisters, if we are Christians, if we have trusted in him, then we are, this is Paul's favorite description for a Christian, we are in Christ. The fate of our king is ours. The one who rules over death, the one who has the keys to death and Hades. The Lord Jesus lived in full obedience to God's law. And that obedience that He lived has been credited to us if we have come to Him in faith. He died and we too die to sin, die to the old man. He rose and we rise with Him to new life. He ascended so that we will one day, and it's so sure that Paul can speak of it as if it's already happened, that we are already raised with Him. Well, Israel could have prayed Psalm 20 for David. We can sing Psalm 20 with absolute confidence that God will deliver His church, that God will deliver us in the day of trouble because He has already delivered our King in His day of trouble. The King of glory, the Lord Jesus, rules and reigns in heaven. Brothers and sisters, let us look to Him and place our eyes there. Would you? Go to the Lord in prayer with me now. Oh Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who lived the day of trouble for us throughout his life of humiliation until his awful death on the cross. And yet you, Father, sent him help from Zion, accepting his offering and granting his heart's desire that all his people would be saved. And so, Lord, it is ours to shout for joy to live under His banner. His banner over us is no longer condemnation, it is love. And so Lord, help us not to get distracted by chariots or power or gold or worldly influence. Help us to trust in You. Help us, Lord, to stay out of the chariots of the world. All chariots will be overturned in the day of Christ's return. O oh, Lord, help us to look forward to that day. Lord, save the King. You did save the King. And if we belong to Him, then we are saved too. Oh Lord, help us to trust in Him. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.